You're listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward to solve the greatest challenge one in ten of our children face, child abuse. Today's episode is on gender bias and the myth of parental alienation. Everyone's heard the story of the vengeful ex-wife who accuses her ex-husband of child abuse just to get back at him during a divorce. There's even a sort of scientific sounding term for it, parental alienation. But is parental alienation actually real? And are judges taking allegations of abuse seriously enough? I spoke to Professor Joan Meyer from George Washington University Law School, who has some frankly startling data on the subject. How does alleging abuse affect custody decisions? Is there actually scientific proof that parental alienation exists? And what can we do to persuade the courts to take abuse claims more seriously? Well, Joan, thanks so much for joining us and our podcast listeners on One in Ten. How did you come to this work? If by this work you mean custody and abuse, as opposed to domestic violence more generally, um, I can I'll back into the answer to that. The the um, custody side of the work kind of came upon me when I decided that I wanted to launch an appellate nonprofit, DV Leap that would handle appeals all over the country and in the Supreme Court involving domestic violence. I was not looking for custody uh, appeals. In fact, I was sort of hoping not to have too many of them. But as soon as we opened our doors, we were deluged with mothers, almost all mothers, but a few fathers who were having a terrible time getting the courts to be willing to protect their children from an abusive other parent um, in custody litigation. And so... um, I handled a few appeals. I wrote some briefs. I did a lot of schol- you know I started digging into the research on on parental alienation. I did scholarship on that. Did a lot of trainings. Um, it just became very compelling, and it and it seemed um, an area of the of the practice around domestic violence that people didn't seem to realize that children were not being protected and were being sent to abusers. So it felt like a really important issue to address. Well, this is, this is a complex and important issue. And one of the things that I was thinking about is when I was starting my career, there was a lot of talk of parental alienation syndrome, a syndrome that has now been, you know, thoroughly debunked, but which seems to have had this interesting morph um, as though if you just take off the word syndrome, the, the fundamental idea is still sound. And so for other listeners who may have come to the work more recently, may not be familiar with the term and the history of that, can you just provide a little background about that? Sure. Um, you're absolutely right. Parental alienation syndrome uh, was invented by Richard Gardner. I'll, I'll start there um, and, and explain that it was debunked. So Richard Gardner was an MD at Columbia who was somewhat well regarded in, in some of his work on divorce. And he came up with the idea that, that was purely from his own experience that when women claim child sexual abuse in custody litigation, they aren't doing it because it's true or a real concern but to alienate the children from the father. And he called it parental alienation syndrome. And he described it in in very subjective terms. There's like seven criteria. And um, things like frivolous rationals, like if you ask the child why they don't want to see father, their their answers are frivolous in the eyes of whoever is observing. Um, That kind of thing. And um, 
Gardner, so it became called PAS. It got picked up by a lot of courts, and over maybe the first decade or so from the 80s into the 90s, um, it got increasingly debunked. Um, and because the word syndrome was in the name, it was easier to attack it as junk science because the word syndrome kind of made it clear it was a kind of a scientific theory. Um, so it got rejected by many leading professional organizations. It got excluded by a bunch of courts that said it wasn't valid. Uh, those were the courts you know, who published opinions. Of course, there were still a lot of courts below the radar using it. But what happened was the family court field, the professionals who worked in that arena and who did believe there was a lot of lying about abuse by mothers and who did and who were concerned about fathers being pushed out of families, kind of re, um, resurrected the idea calling it parental alienation or child alienation or just alienation and basically said there's no such thing as a syndrome, but there is such a thing as alienation. And they basically started doing roughly the same thing in courts, which was you go to court, you've got a mother saying he's not safe for the child, you've got a child saying I don't want to see him. The other side or the forensic evaluator comes in and says that's parental alienation, it's not true, it's just, um, it's just malicious strategy for kicking the father out of the family. Or in cases where the mother doesn't seem malicious, they'll say instead that she's pathological. It's just she's just very, very confused about reality. And that use of alienation against not only women who allege child sexual abuse, but also allegations of child abuse that are physical and allegations of domestic violence, and even cases where it's not an alleged abuse claim, but it's just this father has been so horrible in the family, this kid doesn't want to see him. It's not, it doesn't have to rise to the level of abuse. There could be all kinds of reasons that a kid is terrified or, you know, just really resistant to having to spend time alone with this person. So now, pretty much any time a mother or a child go to court and say they don't want to spend time with the father, that they don't want the kid to spend time with the father, alienation tends to get raised. And even though PAS was rejected as junk science, alienation, because it doesn't have the word syndrome, perhaps, somehow continues to be completely accepted. And there's a very roaring battle in the kind of research fields over whether it's legitimate or not. And um, if you want, I can say more about what the research does and doesn't show. Well, I think it would be helpful to know what the research does and doesn't show because it seems interesting to me that, um, that this doesn't appear to be an equivalent concern when custody is sort of flipped, right? And so there's a gendered quality to this that seems to me to maybe require a little more probing. So this is very complicated. Um, the impression out here in the world, especially in my world and perhaps yours where we work with abuse survivors, is definitely what you just said, that it's a completely gendered notion and it's used against women and not against men. Um, the folks in the alienation field would argue vociferously that's not true. And there definitely are cases where women are alleging that a father's alienating. The, what's interesting is that the study that I did, which I know we're going to get into, sheds some interesting light on that question. So basically, um, you know, where I come out, and, and I think most of us do, obviously it's a, it's a claim that can be used against fathers, and, and it's beginning to, to be used that way increasingly. Um, but the question is, does it have the same power when it's used against fathers? So, you know, do fathers, are there stereotypes around fathers alienating children that fit the same way as there are stereotypes around mothers doing that? Of course there aren't. Um, and so how, how is it playing out? And, and by the way, if it was invented in a completely gendered way, the idea that it's no longer gendered is 
you know, worth questioning. <laughs> right. Well, you know what this what what I'm wondering, and we are going to to go right into your study here shortly, but one of the things that I'm really wondering is why you think that professionals, I mean even outside the court, but professionals, the court system, et cetera, has been so willing to believe that women purposely alienate their children from loving, wonderful, supportive, non-abusive fathers? That's a great question. Um, and my answer is obviously speculative, but I definitely have some opinions about it. One is that I think the stereotype of the vengeful ex-wife is very strong in our culture. In fact, it's not just a stereotype. I mean, every time I've talked to people who are not in the field about this, and I say this alienation thing, blah, blah, women do this, they all pipe up, I know someone who did that. I know a woman who, you know, punished the father for leaving the family and didn't let him see the kids. I'm like, okay, did she claim, falsely claim abuse? Oh, no. And so, ironically, <laughs> of course, we all know, well, we should all know, because there are many men who do that to mothers when they get the kids. But, but anyway, um, the, everyone seems to know somebody who is vengeful. And so the idea of the vengeful ex-wife is just a very robust one in our culture. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, there's, and I've written about this like long ago, there's a very strong sense in our society and definitely in our courts that fathers both get the short end of the stick in custody battles, but also that they are desperately needed in families and children need them. And there's a lot of research and trainings around how much children need fathers, et cetera. And um, so there's kind of a gratitude on the part of courts when a father comes in and fights for custody. Uh, and there's a real reluctance to believe that's a bad father, that the father fighting for custody is bad. We want to believe the father fighting for custody is, is the good father. He's in there wanting to be a father. So it, it, some of that is, you know, has its roots in the sort of the fatherlessness of our culture where, mm. you know, until this generation maybe or so, fathers haven't been that involved with kids. And there's, mm. a, you know, a strong sense that that's, that's been a problem and we want more fathering to happen. So, there's, you know, there's a real resistance to criticizing the fathers who fight for custody. There is a stereotype and there is definitely gender bias, whether implicit or explicit. And then there's a lot of junk science, which, you know, is leading a lot of otherwise open-minded judges astray. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the things when I read um, the brief summary of your study, I, I think I first read it someplace online, uh, a news outlet, and then heard an interview with NPR, etc. I remember what, what I found so striking about this study is that it looked at a question that, you know, as a child abuse intervention professional, we've been dealing with for a long time, that, you know, we dealt with child sexual abuse cases every single day. And we uh, work in the context of children's advocacy centers where you have professionals that, you know, believe kids when they come forward and say they've been sexually abused. And yet when a child custody case would come up, so an allegation either came up out of that or not, it was very interesting how contentious that could become on the multidisciplinary team, you know, with some individuals going, you know, it, it absolutely happened. It's not motivated by anything the mom is saying or not saying. And others who I would say mirrored that sort of stereotype that you're talking about, which is to be, not, if not disbelieving, certainly far more skeptical yeah. about claims that came up in that way. And, um, and a lot of that, I think, was rooted not so much in the angry ex-wife uh, trope, although I do completely agree with you that that's very real, but in a sense that um, 
that someone could be so upset by their divorce that not out of retaliation or anything else would um, misconstrue something or something like that. Right. I mean, it was a sort right. of an excessive giving of the benefit of the doubt to the father, if you know what I mean. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And the excessive reduction of benefit of the doubt to the accuser. Right. And, then, yeah, and that is implicit gender bias. I mean, and that's been documented in a lot of places. Women are not considered as credible as men right off the bat. And particularly, of course, when it comes to family issues or issues relating to, you know, sex and fathering and gender. Um, they, there's a real barrier um, to being believed, um, and there's an excessive benefit of the doubt to fathers because they want to protect fathers from these claims. And there's also a sense that, um, that the, you know, the price to fathers to be, from being falsely accused can never be repaid. You know, that there's simply nothing worse than being falsely accused of sexually abusing your own child. Whereas I would suggest that what's worse is being a child who's being sexually abused and is yes. being protected. But the courts don't seem to think of it that way. There, you know, there tends to be a view, once there's an accusation of what is actually a crime, which is this kind of abuse, everyone kind of goes into criminal justice mode and starts protecting the rights of the accused. And, and there, I think the child is lost sight of well, that's an interesting frame on that. Um, so, so let's talk about the study and and its findings. So, what do you believe to be the most compelling parts? Because there's certainly more than one um, of the study regarding child custody outcomes in cases that really involve these abuse allegations. Okay, so I actually have put together not uh, since we spoke last um, a, a highlights a summary. And I'll just take you through that. I'm happy to share it if your your sure, listeners would be able to access it. Um, so I break it down, and, and there's many more findings to be had. By the way, I, I'm really looking forward to doing more data analysis on a, a variety of other important issues. But here's these are sort of what we see as the core, uh, most fundamental ones. So first of all, we looked at how often do courts believe mothers who accuse fathers of abuse, um, and it, should I say something about how the study was constructed? Where the Please. Data comes from? Sure. Okay. Let me start by doing that then. Um, we wanted a national picture. There's been no study before this that looks at what's happening nationally in family courts. There have been a, a decent handful of studies in different courts or different states that look at different elements of the problem, but, but nothing that was persuasive on a national scale um, and really hasn't gotten any national attention. So we wanted national data. The only way to get national data on what family courts are doing is electronically, and as it happens, I'm in the right decade for that. And you know, I think 10 or 15 years ago it wouldn't have been true, but it is now true that most appellate opinions are published online, and a surprising number of trial court opinions are published online. So we were able to basically carve out a 10-year period, and we searched all online opinions, judicial opinions, from family court cases that involved our issues, abuse and alienation, and. Um, we uh, sorted through them and triaged them down to the ones that really belonged in the study, and we wound up with about 4,000. And then we, um, uh, and so it's not even a sample, it's a census, as they call it. It's all the cases that, that at least that were reported online. Um, and then we analyzed what happened in them. So the first thing we did was look at um, how often do courts believe mothers who accuse fathers of abuse in a custody-type battle. And we found that even without parental alienation being in the case, at least as, as, as far as we could tell from the opinion, um, that courts were 
starting at a baseline of skepticism about mothers' and children's claims of abuse by fathers. Um, for instance, if you averaged, and we broke it down by different types of abuse. We looked at domestic violence, partner violence, child physical abuse, child sexual abuse, and then we had two mixed categories, adult and child abuse and mixed child abuse. Um, and what we found was if you averaged those all out together, even in the non-alienation cases, courts only believed um, abuse claims by mothers 41% of the time. So that alone I thought was worth an article because nobody knows that going to court and alleging abuse if you're a mom is not a good strategy. <laughs> Everyone thinks then, then you get protection. Um, but you actually don't get be believed more often than not. Now, when you break that down by types, what you find is that child abuse and child sexual abuse both are far less likely to be believed than domestic violence. So we found courts were only believing child physical abuse 29% of the time and child sexual abuse 15% of the time. Domestic violence was 45% of the time. And I'm just talking about the pure categories, not the mixed categories, just because that complicates things. Um, Joan? And then we... Yeah. So just to stop you right there, because I think, you know, I want that sure. to, to kind of sink in <laughs> to listeners, because I think it's it, it's really shocking. I mean, to find that when it's alleged, mothers are only believed about child sexual abuse 15% of the time. And if I remember in the study itself, it, it said for both physical and sexual abuse, even when there was other corroborating evidence, including medical evidence, those numbers really did not shift much. Um, the corroboration cases, there's a smaller number of those, and I'd have to, I'll have to dive into the report to look at those, but they didn't shift that much, you're right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's the other paper, is courts will not believe child abuse when alleged by mothers, mm. by mm. and large, especially not child sexual abuse. And, this, and, and I'm starting here in the non-alienation cases, because it gets much more pronounced in the alienation cases. So it's sort of trying to say, here's a baseline of how often women are believed. Well, I think that one of the things that, you know, and maybe just to talk about it for a minute, I think that one of the things that, you know, it, it certainly most concerns me that there are so many kids who would potentially go unprotected in a situation like that, because fundamentally the court is going to offer protection where it believes something has occurred and not where it doesn't. And so we really are talking about an extraordinary percentage of children that are really left in a very precarious position, even if you assume that some tiny proportion of cases are false reports or anything else, it still is an astonishing it's not, number. It's not 85%. Right. That's right. It's astonishing. That's absolutely right. It is astonishing. It is stark. And all I can say is that it completely matches the experience of me, my experience and my, my colleagues at DV Leap and around the country because we were reviewing, you know, people were desperate for us to help either at trial or on, a, on an appeal all over the country. And we get, you know, these requests like maybe 20 a month. And, you know, child sexual abuse is the case of death. You lose, uh, we'll get into that. But it's, you do not win with a child sexual abuse mm. claim. Mm. All right. Well, then I'm going to let you move forward with this while I continue to, to, to contend okay. with my shock okay. here. Yeah. Um, make sure you're sitting down. Right. When fathers cross-claim alienation in, you know, roughly the same cases, the same categories, courts believe it basically reduces credibility even more. So where... In the regular non-alienation case, courts believe 45% of DUD. In the alienation case, they believe 37%. In the regular child physical abuse case, they believe 29%. In the alienation case, cases that cut, that drops by half, 
And this is the best of all. In the child sexual abuse cases, non-alienation cases, they believe 15%. But when alienation is cross-claimed, they believe 2%. And that represents one case out of 51. That's just incredible. I know. Well, um, which means... Which means there's absolutely no incentive at all. Because, of course, this is sort of the popular argument, right? Like there's an incentive for someone to claim this, to falsely claim abuse, because then they'll have complete custody and then they can control the child and control. Actually, there's not only no incentive, there's such an overwhelming active disincentive to do so. And there's a pretty serious conversation among the bar now yeah. about, well, you know, some people are upset that lawyers are advising women not to raise abuse. Um, but when I'm asked, what would I tell a woman? I would tell a woman with a child sexual abuse claim to fight the case on other grounds. Because not only is she going to not be believed, really bad things will happen after she's not believed. Can you just talk a little bit about the custody element of this, too? Because yeah. it's not just that right. they're not believed, right? There's a no, consequences the next, to this. That's the next finding. Right. Um, so, like, too, mothers who allege father's abuse face significant risk of losing custody. So, um, again, going back to the non-alienation cases, on average, cutting across the different types of abuse claims, mothers lost custody about a quarter of the time. Now, that's, you know, that's something we can talk about, whether that's right or wrong. I'm not sure it's easy to judge in, if you're talking about generic cases. where, But, but they are all cases where moms are alleging abuse by a father, so it, it might be bad. Um, but when mothers cross-claim alienation, that doubles. Mothers lose custody half the time. And, and mothers lose custody most often when they allege child physical or sexual abuse. That ranges from 54 to 64%. And when the courts decide to, um, not only alienation has been alleged, but the court decides that she is an alienator, in those, in that subset of category, of cases, mothers almost always lost custody. It ranged, it averaged out at 73%, and it ranged from 60 to 100% of the time. There's something so incredibly punitive, you know, even if you, even if you thought a mother was confused or pathological, whatever the term is, the, the punishment so outweighs the, the, uh, not even a crime, but it so outweighs what's occurred that you just marvel really at this punitive, punitive bent toward mothers who are trying to be protective of their children. And in our context, what particularly worries me about this is, you know, multidisciplinary teams who work on childhood sexual abuse, one of the things they periodically encounter is a non-offending caregiver, whether mother or father, but generally a mother, who's not initially protective of their child. And teams often really struggle with why are they not protecting their child, right? right and so right. CACs, you know, in my world, we spend all this time really helping teams understand through our mental health professionals, child sexual abuse dynamics, why somebody might struggle to believe that's true, all of these things. But you can see that if the punishment for believing your child is to potentially lose custody of that child through this entire uh, court system being tilted toward the father and crediting their claims and particularly crediting and overcrediting parental alienation, you could just imagine that women are in a position to be damned if they do and damned if they don't. That is exactly right. And what's the one consistent thread in those two responses to mothers? Gender. Mm, (laughs) We can mm. trash mothers either way. We can trash Mm -hmm. them for protecting. We can trash them for not protecting. Um, It's not that we have a particular, we as a society have a really clear idea of what mothers should do. 
but we know that mothers are wrong and bad in these cases where abuse is alleged by the dad. So, I'm very curious on what you believe the prescription of this is, aside from, I mean, I think it's wonderful that you shed light on this, because I do feel like many of us in the field had been feeling for a long time, maybe not that these numbers were going on, but certainly our general sense was that courts often did not pay attention to childhood sexual abuse claims in the context of custody, disregarded them, and there were perverse outcomes. Yeah, but, and be, yet they said, but they don't just disregard them. They right. For them. Absolutely. Right. So what is the solution to this? Well, you know, what, many of us are doing a lot of work to try to puncture the power of parental alienation as a theory. I mean, uh, the science isn't there, and even the experts in the field who are somewhat credible as, as thinkers and researchers acknowledge the science isn't there. But then they also assert that everyone knows it when they see it, and it's reliably identifiable. And yet, none of them has come up with any strategy, both in research or in cases, for deciding and distinguishing between the cases where a parent really is toxically turning a kid against the other one, and the cases where the abuse claims are simply valid. Like she has valid reasons to be concerned about them. And so what they're, they're just allowing this constant... Um, what one of my co- friends and colleagues says, misclassification, which I think is a nice term, this constant whitewashing of abuse as alienation. Um, and nobody's contending with how do we stop doing that. And the fact that the alienation field has not really seriously wrestled with stopping doing that lends credence to those of us who feel that it's just really all about denial of abuse. It's a kind of fancy way to empower fathers to deny abuse and um, to not trust mothers and children. Um, if, if it weren't, if it was really about child well-being, there would be much more attention paid to not having it misused the way it is to deny true abuse. And, you know, you just don't see expressions of that concern very much. There's, there's one article that's just coming out about that. But, uh, but it's been, you know, we've been writing these critiques for 20 years, and children have been harmed for 20 years. So, you know, that theory needs to be done away with, and one of the reasons I did this study I mean, I don't mean to say there's no such thing as one parent trying to toxically turn sure, sure. the other. That, if that happens, it should be stopped. It just should be decoupled from abuse claims. Yes. Like, let's stop pretending those two are two sides of the same coin. They're not. Take the abuse seriously and do a much better job of assessing it than we do now. And, um, you know, where there's toxic alienation, show me the evidence. Don't just point to the abuse claim and say she's an alienator. That's just, that's what's wrong with it. That's easily fixed. I have a number of um, proposals um, in various places about how courts could do a better job, but getting them to do it the, the way I think they should is, is another matter. But, you know, the biggest proposal, and it's actually embodied in a resolution that many of us um, worked on long and hard and finally got unanimous passage of last fall, it's called House Concurrent Resolution 72 on Child Safety and Family Courts, it specifically says courts should be determining abuse and safety considerations first before they reach any other best interest. Interesting. And, you know, the idea is just simply if there's abuse or there might be abuse and you can't rule it out, you have no business talking about alienation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. And that's, you know, where that resolution points. And now I'm working with various state uh, advocates, state level advocates to try to get pieces of that rolled into law. And I'm hoping to, um, with a program I'm about to launch, I'm hoping to raise the funds to, um, make a state law legislative clearinghouse to support a lot mm, more folks mm. on that. So there's legislative things to be done. 
there's advocacy things to be done. I'm really looking for um, lawyers at the trial stage who who are have you know have the savvy and have a supportive client with some funds to put on expert witnesses to challenge alienation and make the record that it's junk science. There's no scientific basis and it shouldn't be used in the case. And then let's get some precedence on the issue. Um, it's been very difficult. I've been looking for like as long as DB Leap was in existence, 16 years, for the right case for appeal. And you know, most of the time, um, trial lawyers don't preserve the issue because they're too much in the in the midst of too many things, and they may not have the funds for experts, etc. Um, and even when the issue is preserved, I see appellate courts ducking it right and left. They will not take it up. <laughs> and so it's very hard to fix this in a you know in the litigation context. I think um, but that needs to continue to to be tried. Um, then you do the legislation, and then I went to do the study precisely because it became clear to me that what was going on in these courts isn't really about truth or fact or evidence or children. It's about an ideology. There's a lot of ideology about why abuse is alleged by mothers and children and how much power mothers have over children to make them believe untrue things and, you know, the innocence of these accused men. And it, that's all ideological. And it comes from the Father's Rights Movement and maybe it comes from people's own hearts and experiences. And, it, you know, we needed to paint the picture of what's really going on. And that's why I wanted to collect the data to say, look, this is what's happening. When women allege abuse, they're losing the kids to the abuser. Um, if, I think if the whole culture knows and the society knows and the legal system knows, it will stop being quite as popular as it has been to bend over backward towards accused fathers. I mean, I think a lot of judges, and they, some of them say this, feel that they're, they're being equitable by protecting fathers' rights, you know, because they think fathers have been cheated uh, historically in these cases. Um, and I think they need to learn otherwise, <laughs> that they're actually part of the majority, and it's a, it's a majority that's harming children and is not equitable. You know, I'm, I'm curious um, as well about what has been the reception by the courts, by judges, magistrates, those who work in family law? What has been their response to this research study? It's a great question. Um, so I actually started presenting it as the from the pilot study before we had completed the big study, and I did a number of presentations to judges of that, and um, since then I've done a couple where there were judges in the room, uh, uh, presentations of the full study, and almost without fail, they are hostile. Interesting. There are a couple judges now and then who are sympathetic, but they're kind of protective of their colleagues, like perhaps, or, you know, you got to figure out how to be the bearer of bad news on this. But I've been really struck by the degree of hostility. And, um, you know, these are just numbers. I'm just telling you what's going on out there. You can decide to give it whatever way it deserves and what you think it means. They don't want to hear it because it's, it feels like criticism. And, you know, it is, but it's not personal. It's right. a pattern. It's nationwide. There are no names attached to any of this data. And, um, you know, it's information. Um so I've been pretty struck by the sort of hear no evil, see no evil response of judges. Um, I will say one encouraging sign was that in Pennsylvania, which just had an election for family court, our, a colleague there, an advocate, shared the study with the candidates, and one of them came into a panel with the study, with several wow. copies of it, and said, George Washington has this new report, and it says this, and it shows that, and I love my it. colleagues... Yeah, and he got elected, as it happens, which is great. So there's one judge who's open to the information. Maybe he could talk to his colleagues. Right. Uh, I mean, he's, I think he's planning to. 
You know, I, I think it's interesting. You know, th- you know, there's a small part of me that says I'm not that surprised that there's uh, reluctance to uptake because of the implications of it. I mean, the implication is if you've been sitting on the bench for a long time, right. you've probably decided things in a way without meaning to, but that have had harmful consequences. And yeah. I think in the child sexual abuse uh, intervention field, you know, we've had to cope with that. Practices that we realized that, you know, in the past we thought were fine practices. And then in hindsight, you know, after sufficient research, you go, oh my gosh, how were we ever doing that? Because it, it had these um, terrible implications that we didn't understand. And I can only hope that, you know, as you continue to repeat this, and as we do on your behalf as well, that uh, we can change hearts and minds about this because I just think it's so critical. And my next it question, you know, people talk about children falling through the cracks and oh. being abused. These children, there's a safety net. It's yeah. done over. Yeah, and, and it's deprived. You know, it's, it's so insane to be doing this to children who can be protected. When you know, when there's so many children who it's harder to protect. Anyway, sorry. No, no, I, I so agree with you about that. And I guess my final question for you, well, I ha- would have many more, but we, you know, at some point we've got to wrap the conversation up. But my final question for you is, so for those of us that we're not in legal arenas, we're not lawyers, I mean, we are a step, a step removed from that. We're a part of the investigatory and treatment process, but not necessarily, we're not going to be arguing before the court uh, as an attorney. What can we do when we hear these you know, tropes um, in conversation or as a part of conversations on cases with the multidisciplinary team. What are things we can do to break this down? That is a new question to me. I will think about it in this moment. You may have your own good ideas. Um, I mean, I think perhaps the study gives you a place to stand on to say, Mm -hmm. that's a myth. Here's what's really going on in these cases. Mm -hmm. You know, a, B, there's no scientific support for the alienation theory, not even for the idea that it works the way the theory goes, um, let alone um, that abuse claims are part of the problem, a part of an alienation pattern. Um, there's just nothing to support this, and the data suggests that this is a, this is a kind of an elaborated form of denial and gender bias. Let's stop doing it. Um, by the way, implicit gender bias in the courts. There's a great article on that by Deborah Epstein from Georgetown. It's published in University of Pennsylvania Law Review. Uh, it just came out about a year ago, and it's, you know, a, a tome of uh, authorities. Interesting. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think, it's, I think when we talk about it as implicit bias, it goes down a lot easier. And when we all acknowledge that we have our own implicit biases, which we yes. all do, I did train a bunch of judges on that, and they were very receptive, perhaps in part because I talked about my own implicit biases. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, it, it makes it much less shameful if, you know, it's presented that way. And, and it's true. We do all have our biases. Um, and, and so uh, I think judges need to learn to recognize that they have some biases and that there's information out there that might cast doubt on those biases. And they need to be helped to come to that conclusion by not being overly judged and criticized. And, you yes. know, I try to present the data. Uh, the data is just the data, but they take that as criticism. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, 
I think sharing the study with our multidisciplinary team members, because many times long before it has gotten to a judge, there have been decisions along the way in terms of believing or not believing a mother that really guide what's going to ultimately happen in a case and how that's going to be presented before the court and how the court's likely to receive it. And so I think for each one of us to think carefully about our piece of that so that we're not contributing um, to this is going to be so important. And I just, you know, so appreciate you sharing this with us and keep up this fantastic work. I don't know what's next on on your desk in terms of research or writing related to this, but I, you know. a series yeah. of articles on it. And thank you so much, Teresa. I love the way you think about it. I love that you're so embedded in the child protection world. And I would love to hear more from you or maybe even work with you on these questions of are there ways to to, to make adjustments in the processes that will help kids. Great. We'll be in touch. Thanks again, Joan. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.